Healthspan is all the rage now, but beyond a healthy lifestyle, what does that really mean? How can it be done? What can I do now? Today on episode 126, I am joined by Dr. Nathan Price, Chief Scientific Officer of Thorne Health Tech and co-author of the book, The Age of Scientific Wellness. If there was anyone on the planet who can tell us how to make this shift from merely treating illness to keeping ourselves healthy for a long, active life, Dr. Price is just that person. He has been at the forefront of creating precision medicine as a co-founder of Airvale and associate director of the Institute of Systems Biology, and now he's helping Thorne to bring precision medicine to you and me. In case you don't remember, Airvale was that way ahead of its time company that offered ongoing wellness and nutritional coaching tailored to the results of each person's genetic blood and microbiome tests actual personalized medicine. Today, most doctors wait for clinical symptoms to appear before they act, and the 10 most commonly prescribed medications confer little benefit to most people taking them. Nathan Price and his co-author Leroy Hood argue that we must move beyond this reactive hit-or-miss approach to usher in real precision health, a form of highly personalized care they call scientific wellness. Using information from our blood and genes and tapping into the data revolution made possible by AI, doctors can catch the onset of disease years before symptoms arise. They say this approach is just getting started but has already had amazing results. Diabetes reversed, cancers eliminated, Alzheimer's avoided, autoimmune conditions kept at bay. All right, let's talk to Nathan Price about the technologies emerging this year and his thoughts on what wise athletes can do right now to slow their rate of aging. Dr. Price, welcome to the Wise Athletes Podcast. Wonderful to be with you. Uh, Thanks so much. Thank you for making some time for us. The first thing we got to do here before we jump into some of the details here is to just make sure our audience is clear on why they need to listen to you. Can you tell us a bit about what do you do now? How did you get there? And I think that the way to do it is to kind of walk back through time, like what are you doing now? And then walk back to your work at Airville and then the book that uh, resulted from that. Go ahead, please. Yeah. So currently I'm the chief scientific officer of Thorne Health Tech. Uh, people may know Thorne as uh, one of the leading uh, supplement brands yeah. for many years, works with basically all professional sports teams uh, through their nutritionists uh, and people that are working with the athletes directly and not as sponsorship programs. We work with about 6 million uh, people and about 50,000 physicians. Uh, started as a physician-only uh, brand and then has uh, broadened out uh, from there. Uh, so it's known for that. I was brought on board uh, really to lead a lot of the elements related to testing and AI, which we're now combining uh, together with uh, kind of the natural products that are being made. Uh, I was recruited for that as we stepped back in time because I was for about 10 years professor and associate director of the Institute for Systems Biology in Seattle. Mm. So I'm a scientist uh, and I worked uh, a lot with uh, Lee Hood, as a, who was a close uh, partner of mine. For people that don't know, uh, Lee is one of the most famous biologists in the world. He won the National Medal of Science from President Obama, amongst many, many other things. Wow. And so uh, we had teamed up to... Uh, develop a field that we called scientific wellness. Uh, This is why I got recruited uh, by Thorne uh, to come and and lead that out. But if I step back, uh, basically what what that was around, and it did lead to the creation of a company uh, called Aravel, which Lee and I were co-founders along with Clayton Lewis, the CEO. Uh, And what that company was focused on was trying to develop this whole area that we call scientific wellness, which is a remaking of our approaches to healthcare from being on a reactive 
wait for you to have terrible symptoms, give you a drug kind of process, which is 95% of what's happening and change it to how do you extend your health span? What can we learn by really diving in and studying in, in a tremendous amount of molecular detail, what's going on in people while they're healthy, while they're going through their lives, before they start having uh, challenges, how can those things be reversed and so forth. So we generated uh, the largest uh, kind of multi-omic, multi-faceted, you know, just large big data uh, project that had ever been done on health. Uh, this led to uh, many things, uh, including the company that uh, that I mentioned. It's what we're now pursuing at Thorn. And in fact, we have a new thing we're just spinning out now called Thorn Ventures, which is going to be dedicated to uh, the creation and the platforming of uh, preventive health in a really big way. Nice. Uh, that's that's what's happening right now. And so, as I'm sure we'll get into as we go forward, we've just learned a tremendous amount by studying thousands of people over years with millions of measurements uh, that we're taking all along the way. And so I just, one of the th reasons that I had a, you know, such a fun time the last 10 years is that I, uh, by putting these projects together, uh, by leading these efforts, I've just had an incredible front row seat to tons of new data and being able to see a lot of things for the first time that had just never been measured ever before. And so that's the thing that uh, that I'm really excited about. And we continue to push that going forward now with Thorne as well. That's awesome. I want to uh, drill into uh, something you mentioned, which is uh, systems biology. I don't really know what that means, but it sounds like instead of like looking at heart health or kidney health or liver health or brain health, you're sort of you're kind of looking at the human body as a system and how everything is connected. Am I reading between the lines there? Yeah, that, that's a lot of it. So systems biology is exactly that, the connections. It's the successor to molecular biology. So for many decades, scientists were all focused on what's the molecule, right? And you got down and the pinnacle of that was the discovery of DNA. Yeah. Oh, wow, here's the code of life, right? Amazing. Systems biology is like, okay, we have that code. It makes all these different pieces. How do they fit together? How do they work as a system? How do we understand the emergent properties that drive health from putting those components together? So you can think of um, you know, the brain and study brain health as a system. In fact, we've done that in great detail with a new digital twin model, if we get into that. Yeah. Um, and you can also think about what's happening in multi-organs uh, because the body really is a system of systems. Uh, but it's basically that Molecular biology breaks it down, and systems biology is is building it up. That's great. I, I mean, of course, that's right. I mean, everybody everybody who's had any experience in like problems with their body, they realize how everything seems to be connected to everything, and uh, any yeah. intervention that deals with just one part is always uh, you know wrecked by other things that they that they aren't dealing with. So uh, that's really great that that we're getting there. And I guess one of the complications is that maybe is now being addressed with how powerful computers have gotten is, uh, you know, I, I, I was, I remember when, you know, the whole DNA thing was, and you know, we spent unbelievable amounts of money uh, trying to get to the bottom of that. And the whole idea was, ah, if I could just find the gene for this problem, then we could fix that gene. And it's like, okay, well, it turns out there's like, it's so much more complicated than that. And even like the number of genes that affect like how tall a person is, it's like hundreds of genes. And so, you know, it's it's very complicated. It's incredibly complicated. In fact, you brought up height, which is 
which I think is the greatest example of this, right? There was no gene for height. There's no small number of genes for height. Height is now the most predictable feature off of your genome, apart from sex or something super easy like that. But, but basically, the number of genetic variants it takes to predict well height is 186,000. Oh That's gosh. a lot more than you have genes, right? This is looking at little, you know, single point mutations that matter. Wow. And you can do this if you look at uh, uh, Sean Bradley, who people might remember, you know, uh, uh, an athlete from, uh, you know, who played on the Dallas Mavericks for several years, seven foot six, for those that don't remember him, also had a tragic accident, which is its whole thing. Oh boy. Um, but basically, when you do these polygenic risk scores, you get a distribution that looks kind of normal for a population. And he's way out on the, you know, like you can't even see him. He's so far off the graph, yeah. which means that at birth, you could have said that he was destined or very, very likely to go on to be extremely tall. And so it's, um, and one of the things I like about that is uh, I like to talk about this as the long tail of, of medicine, or we can talk about that in, in terms of what you can think about for your health. Yeah. But there was all this discussion early on that maybe it's not worth it to keep just doing genomes on millions and millions and millions of people because you keep finding smaller and smaller signals. Mm -hmm. So you keep finding genes that matter less and less, but it turns out that the, if when you start summing up all those tiny contributions, like in height, you end up being massively predictive. And this is what I, I think is going to be happening for us going forward as we go from going to your doctor and having them measure, you know, 20 things out of your blood to being able to measure 50,000 where we sum up lots of little pieces of information and yeah. that's going to really give us a lot more predictive power. Yeah. That, I mean, that has got to be what the answer is because, uh, you know, I've heard you say, and, and again, this is one of those things that it just, everybody knows is that, you know, everybody's a little different and that any intervention, you know, a drug that my doctor might give me for a problem might not even work for me, uh, you know, for some, as far as I'm concerned, unknown reason. It's like, that's the standard drug. Well, and the drug doctor's like, well, we'll just try something else. You know, and like, it's no big deal to them. But I'm like, well, wait a minute, aren't I like a human being? And why wouldn't the drug that works for everybody not? Well, you know, I think this is where, you know, the work that you guys did at Aravel, and I guess where you're continuing now at Thorne, is going to come to fruition with these like big data models. And some of the time, some of the time we say, you know, we don't really know but sometimes we do. So I'll, I'll just give, I'll give uh, an example, diving in on one new data type, which is the microbiome. Okay. Right? So the microbiome right, are all these bacteria and other microbes that live in your gut. So everything that you take into your body, whether it's food, a supplement, a drug, has the potential to be modified by those bacteria even before it comes into your body. Yeah. So one factor is that um, we did a study looking at statins. And we, we took microbiomes from thousands of people and we were able to group them into four kind of different types. And for one of those types, statins are twice as effective at lowering LDL cholesterol than they are for other people. Wow. So the microbiome plays a really important role in the efficacy of drugs. This is way bigger than any known genetic effect. And we published that in a journal called M Systems in 21. Another factor, and this was actually done by um, by colleagues, so not, not by us, but uh, they had a really big cell paper on this. Uh, and they showed that, so you know, not only do these things affect statins, but 13% of drugs are metabolized by your microbiome, meaning that that compound is becoming something else in your body 
than in someone else's if you have the wrong kinds of bacteria. Hmm. So this isn't the only reason. There's, and I'll talk, I can talk about a bunch of others, but this is one, right, just to get a little concrete. So that microbiome, so, and, and another thing that we looked at is that as you age, starting around age 50, it, it accelerates. But as you age, your microbiome starts looking less and less like anyone else's, like, like no one else's microbiome. They start drifting apart. Everyone's looks less and less like each other. Uh, this is only true actually in healthy aging, uh, which we could get into. But basically, if, if you're staying relatively healthy, your microbiome looks less and less like anyone else's, which also means that you have more chances of having different interactions that might block even or transform uh, drugs that you're taking in a way that's different from the person next to you. So this is one huge, big black box. Pharma has not dealt with this uh, very much yet, uh, hardly at all. Right. Uh, but it is a factor, and we know it's a factor. Right. So there, and there's many, many, uh, you know, holes, uh, rabbit holes like that we could go down if, if we wanted to. Yeah. Well, gosh, uh, we only have a little bit of time together, and I'm. We won't go too many. My brain is is uh, spinning, trying to figure out exactly how to make the most of the time that we do have. Uh, so I, I think what. I want to end up with talking about what can people do now? I know that there's a great future. Medicine is going to be better. It's going to be more precision in the future rather than this sort of what I think if you call the imprecision medicine, you know, where they've established these drugs and they've spent billions of dollars coming up with these drugs. And thank God we have them, but they're not designed for me. They're designed for people. And people are different. And so, you know, when you look at the, the results of studies, you see these big error bars. And if something was successful, it didn't mean it was successful for every person in the trial. It just was enough people so that it was, you know, statistically significant. So what we want and what you guys started to try to do, and this is what I'm going to talk about here first before we transition into what can people do now. And that would be at Airville and what you're doing now, I think at Thorne, is how do we sort of get into this precision medicine? What, what does it take? What could be, you know, what did you do and what did you find and how successful were you, even with the tools that you had then that aren't as great as the magnificent tools we're going to have in 10 years? What did you do then? And then that'll transition us into what can we do now? You know, me, what could I do? Yeah. Yeah. So a couple of things. So one related to the, the point you made on, on the average. And I just want to, want to say a couple words uh, about that. The first thing to understand is there is no average human at all. There's a great, uh, a, a really great uh, book that was, that was written about this. Um, even what, like there was this big um, search, I think it was in the 1950s. They were trying to find like the man or the woman that was the most average. That was like, the, you know, it was just like, they had this, this, the, the average arm length and the average length. And, and they were kind of expecting to find these people. And anyone that knows anything about high dimensions you know, knows this, but when you start looking, there's no such person. There's absolutely no such person that is you know, largely average on everything. It's, right. it's a statistical impossibility. So, there, so that's just one thing to keep in mind, which is that there is, um, in fact, no, no such thing as, a, as, uh, as even being close to an average person. Everyone has uh, big uniqueness. So that, that's one element. So as you, as you dive into this, I'll give a couple examples. So one, one that was quite interesting was, uh, let's just take a simple thing like lowering your LDL cholesterol. So LDL cholesterol, right, is used as a, you know, a diagnostic on millions of people. And you can try to lower it by lifestyle. 
And it turned out that for some people, you know, and so if you look at this in studies, you get a modest effect, right? A modest statistical effect. So in our studies, though, we had genome sequencing on everybody, and we used a score that would predict your LDL cholesterol from your genome alone. So not knowing anything about what your diet is or your exercise or anything else, you can, you can capture a fair amount of that as a prediction. And what we found was that some people, um, well, I'll just say it explicitly, which is that if your genome predicted that you'd have high LDL and you did, we found that there was no statistically significant ability to lower LDL cholesterol by lifestyle. Uh. But if your genome predicted that you were low and you were high, those individuals were able to lower theirs significantly by lifestyle intervention. So in other words, the outcome of, you know, putting in all that hard work and effort and saying, okay, I'm going to do this. The outcome in terms of that marker is predictable by the genome. Uh, Another example, people that were trying to lose weight, uh, what we found was that if uh, is that there was a signal in the microbiome. So if you're going, you're, you're, you know, you're trying to lose weight through these, you know, in this case, it was the Aravel program. Um, and they were going through that. If at baseline, they had a microbiome that was more likely to break complex carbohydrates into um, short chain fatty acids, as opposed to simple sugars, those people were much more likely to be successful. Whereas if they had microbiomes that would break down complex carbohydrates into simple sugars more than fatty acids, much less likely. Hmm. And so there are all these personalized efforts. And what you can do is, so I just gave two examples, but you can sum up you know, pun, you know, hundreds of those kind of examples. And then what you do is that on every axis, you can do a personalized calculation of, is this likely to change for you? Is this one? And so forth, rank order them. And all of a sudden you come up with this list of here are the things that are most likely to change for you. And so I gave, I gave a few examples of how we've done that in Aerovale. And obviously we can systematize that and make that uh, continuing to be you know, better and better as we, as we go forward. Okay. So that's really amazing. And, and what you guys did at uh, Aerovale, as I read, is uh, it was the genome. Uh, and is that, was that like the same as like a 23andMe or was there a more rigorous uh, analysis of the genome? So we started by doing whole genome sequencing, which was, um, you know, kind of the full everything uh, that ended up being, you know, a high, higher price point really than people wanted. So, so the first about two thirds were whole genome. And then the last part was more like a SNP ship that would be more similar to 23andMe. Okay. And for people to get an idea, like you're measuring, um, whole genome is measuring billions of elements and you're measuring uh, millions on a SNP chip. So it's about a thousand times more, more data. Okay. And then you were taking uh, blood tests, uh, uh, you know, just, uh, uh, and was that just like normal blood panels that uh, I might get in an annual physical or was it, you know, anything special? Um, so it was kind of, there were three groups of what we got out of the blood. So one was a bunch of clinical labs, probably like the kind of things you would typically get it from your doctor. Yeah. Plus, maybe you know, doubled or tripled over that. We made about 150 uh, different measurements okay. of those, but those were those were pulled from the kind of things that you'd have in your doctor. Those were really important because those are really well understood, and then they're an anchor for understanding these other data types that are newer. We also spent um, money from uh, that we had raised from venture capital. So this was not charged to people, but at the same time, we also generated metabolomics data. Uh, which are all these small molecules. So we would measure, you know, on the order of about a thousand of those mm-hmm. out of the blood of individuals. 
And then we measured several hundred proteins on another chip. So those were more like at the level of scientific discovery, okay. but we would make lots of those kinds of measures. And those were, were very interesting. Uh, they were used for discovery for legal purposes. We weren't allowed to you know, use them for uh, recommendations at the time, but we were able to see things that jumped significantly. For example, we had a woman that um, uh, unfortunately developed pancreatic cancer uh, when she was in, in the program. And those data were able to show that up to two years before that transition, you start to see these jumps in proteins that precede it. And uh, uh, we published uh, we published all the paper on it, so you know people can look and see that. Uh, and then you can just observe as certain of these networks uh, start becoming more and more perturbed, more different than normal. And you can watch these divergent uh, pathways uh, as they happen. And so that was one of the big focuses that we had at Aravale and that we still have for all of our efforts, including things we're initiating at Thorne for looking at longitudinal data, because what you really want to understand is when these things start to happen, they're small and a lot of them may be quite reversible. We know in some cases they're very reversible. If you catch them early enough? If you catch them early enough and if you can really understand what is you know, just natural variation, versus this is the start of a problem. So we were really diving in to uh, all those data to, to understand what's the problem, you know, what, when you see something change or a jump of some nature, what's the probability of that happening? Is this a one in a hundred kind of event where, okay, we're right. gonna see a lot of these? Is this a one in, in, in you know, a hundred trillion event? Yeah. That, wow, this is just never gonna happen. Like this is very, very- Right, this is something real. Yeah, it's like this is this is a disease. This is not normal variation. Okay. And so we were building out statistical models around you know all of those those kind of things so that you can uh, have an early warning system essentially. Well, and it sounds to me like you're not going to get any information by testing people once a year. You know, like I did for my whole life, getting an annual physical and getting a blood test and just hoping nothing showed up. And when my doctor you know, even if I was at the high end of normal and my doctor said, ah, you're fine, I'd be like, good. He's, my doctor said I was fine. There was really like no model to plug all these numbers into to see, you know, what was happening or even like a tracking over the years of, you know, my markers getting worse and worse and worse kind of a thing. So, you know, how do we, you mentioned digital twin and, and maybe that's the the same thing that I'm I'm referring to here, but you know what, I guess what I wish I had was some knowledge of the things I should be tracking and how often should I be testing them? And then where would I put that so that some system would say, gosh, there's a high probability that something's going wrong. And here's the set of things that you can do to make sure. And here's the set of lifestyle, drugs, whatever that you know, can start to reverse that here, now that we've caught it early or gosh, we've caught it late. Now, what do you do? Right. So I do think that um, digital twins is, is essentially a lot of the answer here. Tell us what that is. Yeah. So a digital twin is basically an algorithm that tries to represent your unique biology. So, you know, the basis of it, at least the way we build it, is a fairly common network, right? Humans are very substantially similar, right? So you start from that, but then all kinds of particular features within that network are different on a person to person basis, okay? 
And so, uh, and that can be because of your lifestyle, your genetics, a whole host of issues that go into that. So what these digital twin models do, and we've built these out now for uh, brain health as the first one, but and we've, we're about halfway through building it out for metabolic health, and there are some nice. bunch of others that are, are coming. I want to do muscle wasting, which is an incredibly important one as you get older. Yeah. Uh, that's on, up next on the docket, um, you know, number of these things. So when we look at this, what we can do is we can take from blood measures. So you get a panel of blood measures, some genetics, and then a bunch of questionnaires to learn a little bit about lifestyle and diet, you can create a simulation. So this digital twin model that we've done, just to give a sense of the scope of it, it takes data from about 1,200 papers in the literature. It builds a detailed dynamics physiologic simulation of how the brain maintains health. We have something called a Bayesian network overlay. The only important aspect of that is it means that we can take as much or as little data as possible, and it will probabilistically fill in the rest so that you can do the computation. Okay. So what that means is that we can take this for individuals and uh, look at all these known risk factors for, uh, let's say, Alzheimer's disease and dementia. And, and this will transition a little bit into, you know, what can you do now? Uh, so I gave one of the three opening um, keynotes for uh, the uh, combinatorial therapies in Alzheimer's disease at the National Institutes of Health a month ago. And uh, there were three talks. First talk was a pharma talk. Uh, very, very well done. Very professional. Very like all the things that, that really good people in pharma are. And it goes through all the drugs that are in development and where they're at. But it also goes through effect sizes. And you're talking about Currently, the best you can do is slow down of decline for a couple of months or something. Like the effect size is, you know, you've spent about a trillion dollars over the last few decades and your effect size is almost nothing. Yeah. Second talk was on lifestyle interventions aimed at prevention. Effect sizes, huge, years to decades mm-hmm. of healthy brain life, radically better. And, you know, this has been, we've been evangelizing this like crazy. And in fact, and they've, what they've now been what we've now been able to do in this field is separate this into different ethnicities, for example. And I'll just give one basis of this. So Latinos have the highest measured ability to reduce. It's estimated that 56% of all dementias in Latinos can be eliminated through lifestyle intervention. Wow. So, so when you look at that drug industry and you say, okay, here's a trillion dollars, here's a drug that slightly lowers decline, it costs you a fortune, it will bankrupt most people, and uh, if you do it for very long, and your effect size is tiny, right. prevention is radical. And I, I wrote a piece for the LA Times uh, this year, uh, or last year, I guess, 2023, that um, went through like the ROI and how much better it is if you're thinking about prevention for dementia as opposed to trying to deal with it after the fact. So to come back then, so the digital twins, which I did as, as, the, as the third talk in this session, what it does is it builds this complex model where you can actually take this information and then deliver personalized programs to people for how do you stave off dementia. And it will actually calculate the envelope of how many additional years you can likely gain. Um, some people it's huge, some people it's smaller, uh, some of it's driven by genetics and so forth. But there's many things you can do. So, you know, so this can bleed kind of naturally into, well, what are the kind of things that we might recommend? Yeah. So one element of this is that it's really given rise to a very different conception of what drives Alzheimer's disease. So what you'll read in the media primarily and what has been the dogma for a long time is that 
Alzheimer's is caused by amyloid plaques. And I think that's just um, not true. And so what evidence is there of that? Well, one, there's been 450 clinical trials testing the ability of clearing amyloid from, you know, really making a difference on brain health. There's only been one or two that had a tiny effect. And we think that they can actually be explained by by some other mechanisms. Anyway, I don't want to get too, too technical on this. But but what we think is really at the heart of Alzheimer's, uh, and that's built into the model, is the is really more of a metabolic disease that's centered on having to keep neurons alive. Um, one of the elements that happens, and this is what really matters, especially for the kind of listeners you'll have here, older athletes, right. which is as you get older, your ability to perfuse oxygen into your brain goes down. And this is a massive trigger because the lower amounts of oxygen mean it's harder and harder to keep energy in your brain high. And your brain's a huge energy hog. 20% of your body's energy goes to your brain. And it's only 2% of biomass. So you might not think about it, but sitting there and think like cognition is expensive uh, from an energy perspective. So you have to keep that perfusion up. This is why strenuous exercise as you get older is protective against dementia. When you're thinking about amyloid plaques, it's not clear why that is. When you start thinking about keeping neurons alive and perfusing oxygen, it becomes obvious why that's true. There are also compounds that matter. So as you get into lower oxygen, so as, you know, and these rates of decline can be mitigated by exercise, but not yet stopped. But as they as they go down, another feature that happens is that uh, you have to keep energy generation going. And there's an, a gene that gives the highest risk for Alzheimer's called APOE. Mm-hmm. APOE4 gives the highest risk. That variant APOE2 is protective. So it turns out that as your oxygen gets low, you want to keep the concentration of cholesterol and astrocytes, these supporting cells around neurons. You want to keep that concentration level low. And it's just more efficient to keep your neurons alive. Hmm. Well, it turns out APOE4 trans- has a role in transporting cholesterol out of astrocytes, but it's really slow which means that it gets gobbed up and your energy generation isn't as good, more neurons die. APOE2 does it fast, which keeps that concentration low, keeps your energy generation more efficient. Those people don't get Alzheimer's as much. One factor that ends up being rate limiting that you run out of as you're trying to make energy, this is a substrate, this is like gas in your car basically, is phosphatidylcholine. And so we look in the nutrition literature and see do people that eat diets rich in phosphatidylcholine get um, Alzheimer's later? And the answer is yes, about three years later. And we have a mechanism, again, in the model for exactly why that is. Hmm. Now, talking about systems, uh, as an aside, this is where it gets um, you know, another factor, which is there are certain microbes that will eat phosphatidylcholine and turn it into trimethylamine, which becomes TMAO, which is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Okay, so your microbiome your microbiome. So you also want to optimize that. And I do serve on a, on a advisory board for a center that's dedicated, a multi-institutional center across Duke and Caltech and UCSD that's, that's centered on this question of Alzheimer's and the connection with the microbiome. So those exist. Um, anyway, I don't want to get too complicated on that. Uh, but phosphatidylcholine in general, that's a benefit. Vitamin D. Uh, vitamin D is a really uh, uh, important modulator uh, in observational studies, if you have low vitamin D, uh, you have a quadruple the rate of getting uh, Alzheimer's disease, at least when you look in elderly uh, populations. There's some controversy around vitamin D as being in amongst the general recommendations mm. because it's failed um, a few different clinical trials that are in the literature that are randomized controlled trials, which are our gold standard. 
However, um, when we do the simulations with the digital twins, where we can look at the mechanism, we're able to recapitulate the amount of benefit that should be seen by the known mechanism of vitamin D. And we can also re-simulate the RCTs that have been done. And one of the factors that comes out of that is that none of those studies would be expected to show a signal, even if vitamin D were at causal at the 100% level that it appears to be from the observational trials. So anyway, I don't, I don't want to get too in the weeds there, uh, other than if people want to look this up and why is it not in the general recommendations and why do I say that I'm still very bullish on it? It's because of diving in on this. And so the, the big point that I want to make here as we go through, you know, a lot of the steps and things you can do. And by the way, if people want to look up that LA Times article, I think I put all these uh, compounds in there. Correct. But the big factor is that when you run these digital twin simulations, it lets you look at play what if scenarios over decades of life, because we can simulate cognition over a whole lifespan. And so what you see is that when you look at a single intervention, like if all you do is take phosphatidylcholine or all you do is take vitamin D and that's, and you just do those things in isolation, yeah. most of the time they don't do anything because one factor isn't enough. It's like having the gears of your, your clock, right? There's three gears, they're all broken. Or it's changing one gene for height and you got a hundred thousand. It's a system. It's always a system. Yeah. And so that's why I think a lot of these trials that fail so often in RCTs, I think a lot of the reason for that is because they're always isolating this one compound or this one element and people almost never respond to it. You have to have huge trials to see a signal because it's mostly doing nothing. But what we find in the digital twin simulations for people is that once you start doing a personalized set of three or four different things, almost everyone is a responder. And so this is the point is that you can actually run proper trials. You can, you can generate all the scientific evidence. You can, you can build it, but you have to get out of this mindset of looking at things one at a time. You have to solve for the system. And that system is represented in, um, you know, in a model that generates a digital twin of you and a digital twin of me and a digital twin of everybody where you get personalized recommendations. And what we're showing is that you get radically better results when you take that kind of a systems approach. And we're, go and we're building this out. Uh, we already have a functioning version of the digital twin model for brain health that I'm mentioning. Uh, we're hoping to get that out to people, you know, really soon. And it's a, um, it's just an incredible capability. And there's already a lot of things that you can do by just stacking all of the various elements along this. And, and lifestyle intervention, just to say, you know, is here and now. I mentioned the huge effect sizes that have been seen. This has been validated in the FINGER study, which is the most successful clinical trial ever in Alzheimer's disease that did lifestyle interventions, exercise, supplements, um, but basically just, you know, optimizing the health of people uh, yeah. showed that. There's a huge study called Pointer, which is ongoing now in the United States, which is expanding on that. And they actually have these all over the world now. But the big lesson that people should know, and this is not just dementia, there's other things, but you know, that's been a big focus of mine over the last few years, uh, is that while we don't have any drug that will reverse those terrible symptoms, there's no drug that's going to you know, grow back your neurons once they've died, but prevention is totally doable. You should start earlier. Uh, people that are listening to this podcast are probably in a good space in the sense that they're 
you know, they're exercising, they're working out, they're thinking about their health, they're making measurements, but you can get very precise about these things now. And it makes a, and it makes a big, big difference. Okay. Wow. Okay. So some of what we've described is for the future, maybe the near future, um, the ability to have digital twins. And, and it sounds like it's going to come out piecemeal at first, you know, we'll have one for the brain and then um, metabolic health, you had said, and, you know, yeah. and then muscle health, uh, you know, and on and on. And, um, uh, and of course, you know, people like me, people listening now, we want to do stuff now. I, you know, I've been doing stuff and I've been, you know, hoping that I'm doing the right thing. I don't have a digital twin. I'm not really sure. You know, I've got, I, I get my blood tested every three months and, um, and I'm plugging my numbers into, you know, the Levine bioage model, you know, to, how am I doing? You know, yeah. it says I'm 13 years younger than my chronological age. Okay. Uh, well, that's yeah. good, I think. Um, but, you know, is that model right? Who the heck knows? I, you know, I don't know. It sounds like what you're saying is, look, don't have any big holes in your, you know, your lifestyle, you know, because no one thing is going to do it. It's the network. It's the system that's got to be working right. And if you've got everything good, but you're missing one thing, okay, good. Then that one thing is going to have a big effect. But if you're bad on a lot of things and you just fix one thing, you're going to think, oh, well, that was useless because it won't have had an effect. So it, you really have got to be thinking in terms of, I, if I'm getting you, I've got to be thinking in terms of I got to get every, I got to work on all of the pillars of health and not be deficient in anything. Am I getting that right? That's exactly right. And there's tons of things that you can, that you can do now, of course. Um, so just thinking of, of various pillars, um, you know, muscle wasting is obviously a big one. Uh, your audience is thinking about this, making sure you get enough uh, protein intake. Uh, and I think even things like, you know, just making sure you add either a lot of protein that you're eating or supplement with a protein powder on top of eating a lot of protein. I, I think people underestimate the amount that you really want to kind of load up on that becomes you get less efficient at being able to turn protein into muscle as you get older. Uh, so, you know, and that muscle wasting, you know, creatine, you know, kind of, there's a lot of basic stuff that you can just do. That's important for that. Okay. Uh, there's new molecules coming out that are pretty interesting for mitochondrial health. Urolithin A is one that I think is quite interesting that people okay. are studying a lot now. Um, incidentally, not one that we sell, so you know, but but I think is a is an interesting compound. Uh, you know, so there, there's that those elements. Inflammation, right? So are you chronic inflammation is a huge part. So how can you keep that down? Uh, that can relate to issues in your microbiome. So you could look to see if you have, um, you know, low level pathogens. I, you know, Thorne has a, a gut health uh, microbiome test for people that are interested in that, as do some other companies. Uh, day two is another good one. Um, but basically you have, um, you know, an ability to look at those uh, in the uh, in the factors that they might have there. You might be looking at things, you know, omega-3s or uh, uh, elements like that that are related to anti-inflammatory. Quercetin is another compound that I think is quite interesting uh, because you can look at that for, for its anti-inflammatory uh, properties as well as it's an, it's an anti-senolytic. And what uh, senolytics refer to that as you get older, you accumulate more of these senescent cells or kind of zombie dead cells. So you're, you're, you're accumulating those. Uh, studies mm -hmm. have shown that quercetin can help uh, accelerate the uh, clearing of those kind of cells. Uh, so that, you know, that's another interesting point. Okay. Uh, NAD pools, I think are interesting. Uh, so NR or NMN or things like that can be uh, useful 
and I think pretty much on the same path. I think NMN has to become NR to get into the cell anyway. So you basically, you can, you can take those, uh, they have an increase in the amount of NAD in different pools. That's important for efficiency of things like uh, DNA repair. Uh, so, you know, some of those uh, uh, can be interesting. You know, so it's really just those buckets because as you look at, at it, kind of, and then it's all the things that I mentioned on dementia, because there's kind of four big categories that matter. Um, so cardiometabolic, oh, two other big factors, obviously. Insulin resistance, you want to be watching that. Make sure that your, um, you know, that your uh, hemoglobin A1C stays low. Uh, you want to look at the health of your veins and your vessels. ApoB is a particularly good marker uh, mm-hmm. to, to look at, as well as the distribution of particle sizes for, um, you know, the uh, like LDL cholesterols uh, related um, particles and so forth. But it's really four elements. It's their cardiometabolic health. How are you looking at that? VO2 max, actually huge, right? For your athletes, higher your VO2 max, the better off you are. Mm-hmm. The more muscle mass that you have. Peter T has done a really beautiful job of evangelizing this and going through it. But if you want to be, you know, functional in your 90s, you better be. And you know, there's certain high elements of fitness in that top, you know, five percent that you want to be in when you're younger. So that sure. matters. If you're declining over time, then you better start high now better start high. So that all makes sense. So it's your cardiometabolic health. It's your, uh, it's the muscle wasting, right? Which is happening. So it's making sure that you've got capacity for that. Uh, it's, uh, it's dementia, uh, you know, which is, you know, making sure that your brain, uh, comes with you along the ride. And then, you know, we've gone through now, you know, a set of, you know, different verticals and things, uh, that you can, uh, step through that really matter for that. And then the fourth area, uh, which we haven't really touched on and is a little bit tougher, is um, our cancers. And, you know, screening for that early, the Galeri uh, uh, test um, that Grail made, I think, is a good start on that. That screens for about 50 different cancers from a blood test. Um, you know, those are kind of the pillars. I mean, that's like 90 percent okay. of death there. And so if you if you're really following and keeping up on on those areas and as they they emerge and then, you know, to make some things easier, uh, and we cross most of those areas of thorn through, um, we have some blood testing, uh, biological age test, uh, that will do, do a lot of the, uh, cardiometabolic, uh, especially, uh, related aspects of that, uh, microbiome testing, I think can be uh, a helpful component for people. Yeah. Especially if they got inflammation issues. Yeah. Well, excellent. Okay. So I, I wanted to hit a couple of other things. What? If we can talk about aging as not just an accumulation of the number of times you go around the sun, but more sort of an accumulation of problems that tend to match up with, you know, how many times you go around the sun, but some people seem to age more slowly than other people, right? Some people age very fast, right? If you're smoking a lot or, you know, you're very metabolically unhealthy and everything is starting to go bad on you, you're probably you're getting closer to the end faster. So you're aging more quickly. And some people, you know, like my mom who just doesn't, you know, and her mom lived to 106 and my mom's on the same track. She's just going to, you know, go for a long time. You know, hopefully I got some of those genes, but still, I think that there are, and we're still sort of in the lifestyle thing. There are some things that you can do to maybe slow that rate of accumulated problems and commonly talked about is calorie restriction is, uh, you know, a longevity thing. Um, and maybe a, something related to that is like fasting. 
we've already talked about exercise and everybody listening here, I think, is already doing some exercise. Metabolic health, you mentioned. Uh, another thing that, and so I'm, I'm kind of interested in like the, the fasting and the, the intermittent fasting. And then this other thing of like reass, making sure that you're working in terms of cycles, because it doesn't seem like the human body is like a steady state thing, right? I mean, every day you sleep and then you're alert and then you sleep and you're alert. And, and then you've got, you know, longer cycles and shorter cycles and, you know, including even, you know, what the, the whole uh, rapamycin thing is about with the mTOR, you know, being sort of stuck in the on and as you get older. And, and so if you can reestablish the mTOR up and then the mTOR down, you know, seems to reverse some of the signs of getting older. So uh, what did you find in this, these buckets, um, you know, in uh, your work with Airvel or in what you're doing now? Yeah, I think, you know, you highlighted a number of, of the pieces that are really important, um, you know, for individuals as, as they go forward. Uh, you know, one surprising one we found I alluded to earlier was just this relationship with uh, uniqueness scores in the micro, in the microbiome. Mm-hmm. So, and how, how different that was for individuals, uh, just showing that that was actually predictive of all cause mortality in 80 year olds of those who would live versus those um, who would die. Mm-hmm. So uh, making sure that you, you know, are on that kind of health trajectory, I think was important. Uh, rapamycin, I, I agree, is, is quite an quite an interesting case. I heard some, you know, data recently that um, is going to be coming out soon that that shows that you know rapamycin may in fact increase uh, cerebral um, perfusion uh, pretty significantly, particularly for women. You know, so that's going to be, I think, another addition onto the rapamycin story. Is this the oxygen into the brain thing? The oxygen into the brain. Yeah, thanks. That's an easy, better way to say that. <laughs> um, yeah, so the uh, the oxygenation uh, rate uh, into the brain. Great. Uh, so that, you know, that's emerging as, as quite an interesting case. Well, I guess we went through a number of them, you know, the NAD boosters, the yeah. anti-senolytics, uh, all of these these factors, I think, play uh, play an important uh, important role as you're getting, you know, into those those older stages. Okay. Well, and we don't want people majoring in the minors, as some people like to say. And, and so if, if your major pillars of lifestyle interventions are not in good shape, then focus on that rather than, you know, these little things, which maybe might help, might not help. Uh, with the little bit of time we have left here, I wanted to do two things. One was let you uh, tell us how we can find you and find more information about uh, the information that you guys have come up with. But uh, before we hit that, I wanted to talk about these clocks, this whole idea of you know, biological age, this, you know, how am I doing, right? You know, I've, I'm this much years old, but my body is, you know, behaves like what, based on my blood or whatever, more like I'm 10 years younger. I'm, you know, that's good. Or I'm 10 years older. Uh-oh, what, you know, what can I do? What, you know, what have you found to be useful? There's the blood markers, there's methylation clocks. I always think I'm doing really good until I do one of those, like, take a picture of my face those damn pictures. They know how old I am every single time. And you know, and then the eye, the, the blood vessels in the eye seems to be um, a useful thing. What, what is, have you found? Yeah. So we've, we've looked at this in quite a bit of detail. So the biological age, one element of that I think is important is that these clocks are quite different from each other, as you were just mentioning. So it's not really true that there's a good measure for like, 
global biological age. And I'm not even sure that it makes sense to think that there should be Hmm. because you have different parts of your body and different elements that are, are likely aging at a different rate. And the thing that matters is what's aging the fastest because, you know, we typically die from our weakest, our weakest link. That's a great point. (laughs) Right. We want the weak link, not the average link. The average link. Right. Like the, you know, the example I gave of the woman who had pancreatic cancer, we were monitoring all kinds of health. By, by all standard clinical measures, she was one of the healthiest people in the entire cohort. Amazing. She was an athlete. She was in great shape. Everything was fabulous, except that she developed pancreatic cancer, which is one of the two probably worst cancers that there are. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that was the and that unfortunately, in that case, that was the weakest link. So that's one of the reasons for the kind of comprehensive um, you know, monitoring type approach. So in terms of biological age, so, uh, the one that I like the best, which is what we did at Thorne, um, those things are obviously connected because I <laughs> chose to do it that way, but <laughs> it was, um, uh, building it around clinical labs. So the epigenetic tests I think are quite interesting, but they're not as actionable today. And I think what matters most is I, you don't want to use a biological age. It's kind of fun for parties or whatever, but its main function to me is not to just be able to say, hey, look, I, you know, I got 10 years younger. Um, I used to get in debates with my young daughter at the time around that because I had gone down 10 years in biological age through the oh, Aravel program. And, nice. <laughs> and I would say, oh, I'm younger this year. And she would explain that I didn't understand how birthdays work. Right. The honesty of children, yes. The honesty of children. She was kind enough to explain that to me. Um, so... But the, the, the main point is not, you know, just that you want to lower, you want to see that your number is better. You want an action plan of what to do. Yeah. So the clinical labs, I think, are useful because you can map them to not only just one particular score, but you can map them into a score for cardiometabolic health or yeah. age or liver age or whatever right. and get a plan of action. So I think that's one of the important pieces. Uh, but that the other thing then coming back to what I mentioned at the beginning is just having multiple views or multiple facets in there will give you a sense for where you're having the most issues you know what might be the weakest link what what's the piece that you know might be you know the best that you can add on to so that your whole overall system like operates better but in general i think the clock you, you have to be a little careful not to overinterpret them but they are they are useful i think for people Especially if they're motivating. If it gets you off your butt and makes you do what you really should do, then good. Exactly. They're motivating and they're just easier to understand. Like if you hear, oh, my hemoglobin A1C percentage is 6.2%. Is that a problem? It is. It's above threshold. But it's like, but if you don't remember, that's a problem. Whereas if you think, oh, my metabolic, I got three years older this year, you know, that's bad. And if I got two (laughs) years younger, that's good. Like it's simple, right? It's It's easy to get your mind wrapped around. Fantastic. Okay. So tell us how we can find you more information about what you do, what Thorne is doing, your book. Yes. So the book is The Age of Scientific Wellness, uh, available at bookstores uh, everywhere. So you can find a lot of what we're doing uh, from that. Uh, I'm quite active on uh, LinkedIn. Uh, So you can just, my name, Nathan Price or Nathan D. Price on LinkedIn. Uh, Connect there. I post um, fairly frequently there with new discoveries, new things that are coming out. I also do it on Twitter uh, to a little bit lesser extent at ISB Nathan Price. And then everything with Thorne is um, uh, is at 
www.thorne.com, T-H-O-R-N-E. And I have a brand new venture um, that we're launching out of there called Thorn Ventures that's going to be dedicated to the development of the preventive health and scientific wellness industries. Fantastic. And I will be there as well. And what's the timeline for like this new stuff coming out for the consumer, for me? For the consumer. So um, we're kind of working on timelines. I'm hoping that Digital Twins for Brain Health will be available by the end of the year. Uh, kind of working through a, a pattern on that. We just, you know, it's just part of my learning how to get product out better as opposed to being like a scientist. So yeah. we're just like churning that out. We, we've been meeting with lots of people. We could actually do it already today. So we've just got to get that sorted out, work through the regulatory path and so forth. Got it. So we're, we're working through that. Um, we'll have a new metabolomics test also hopefully coming uh, around the end of the year, which will let, you know, we have a, a you know, an at-home blood collection device uh, called the NanoDrop. That's great. That uh, is going to be good. The microbiome test is all, of course, available now. Uh, Thorn sells um, about, we have about 200 natural products across, um, you know, supplements of various natures. Almost everything that I mentioned in the podcast is available there with some exceptions. Um, uh, most of those, um, some are proprietary, but most are not. Most are available from multiple sources, but Thorn's a really good, good source for those things. So that's all available uh, now. Uh, and then a lot of these other things are, we're just trying to move them out as fast as possible. That was the big reason why I moved from my scientific career at ISB to Thorn was uh, to try to get this into the hands of people because I think there's a lot that can be done. Fantastic. Well, hey, I want it. So uh, work hard, get it out there, man. <laughs> as fast as possible. Yeah, All so. right. Hey, thank you very much for your time. This has been really a great conversation. Have a great Thanks week. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you. <laughs> All righty. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening into my conversation with Dr. Nathan Price. You can find more information about Dr. Price in the show notes.